Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Neil Ellison. Okay, I would uh, remind you that the coloring books are for the children, not for the parents, <laughs> if you get uh, having trouble staying through the sermon here this morning. Let me open us with prayer. Uh, Lord, our desire is always to glorify you. That's what we're called to. And so, Lord, we pray uh, for your spirit to be upon us, Lord, to hear from you, to know your presence and know your love and your faithfulness, to learn, Lord, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord. Amen. As uh, this week progressed uh, and all that transpired, I was... uh, tempted to change my sermon and, uh, oh, you know, a lot of opportunities. You could always talk about Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat in the midst of the storm. Sometimes we think God's asleep in the midst of our problems. Or then I also even thought about, uh, hey, what about the title, sounds cool, the title, Living in the Eye of the Storm. How about that? Doesn't that, that sounds interesting. Okay, but um, the thing of it is, is my assignment for the week was to continue in the book of Romans. And uh, my desire in talking about this is to explain it, uh, give us some understanding with it, uh, but at the same time, be able to connect it with you in a special way and uh, make it meaningful uh, to you in turn. the uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10, if you'll pull out uh, your Bibles or look at your pew Bibles there, um, we'll start here in verse 1. Paul, of course, in uh, the early chapters, in, uh, verse, in chapter 9, he's talking about uh, the Jews, and he's really struggling because uh, Uh, He is just so sorrowful about how the Jews have failed to accept Christ, that they have missed God's plan of salvation. Uh, They're locked into their uh, system, and and, uh, only there's a a remnant, Lord, so to speak, from uh, the Jewish population that have embraced the gospel. And he comes in with these words in chapter 10. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for uh, for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So he says, here the Jews have sought after God. I mean, they have, uh, you know, been faithful uh, in the sense of uh, all that their, their rituals and the sacrifices and, and all the, the part of their uh, system here, and they have a zeal, but he said it's without knowledge. You know, it's one thing to have, to be zealous for something, but if you don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it, then it, it's, he's Paul saying it's basic, basically uh, worthless here. And zeal is not enough. Then zeal must be based on knowledge. 
This is a contradiction for us today. Um, we have often heard the statement made, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Ever heard that before? That's very common in our culture today. And obviously, the Jews were sincere and zealous in their beliefs, but their beliefs were erroneous and mistaken. It would be, in a sense, like getting on a plane. If I wanted to fly uh, to New York, and I go and I get on a plane, but the plane I got on was going to Los Angeles. Now, I could be very sincere and very adamant and very zealous about wanting to go to New York. But I'm headed for Los Angeles. And I can complain and I can whine, all that stuff is all I want, but that's never going to get me to New York. So it's kind of the same way here in terms of the Jews. <clears throat> the desire of their heart, of course, was to continue in their system. Uh, <coughs> if we look at Paul's text, it says, but they did not know the righteousness that comes from God. And because of that, they did not submit to it. So as he's saying, you know, is that an excuse? I mean, but it, doesn't God, why doesn't God cut them some slack here? I mean, they did it out of ignorance. They were zealous, but uh, they missed the mark. But the part of that verse that I didn't quote for you tells why they stand before God as they do. It says, but as we look closer, we see that Israel stays ignorant, not because the information is unavailable, but because it suits them to stay ignorant. They wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to do it their way. And we see in that text that they knew and they had knowledge, but they chose to do it their way. The reality is, is that while we're talking about 2,000 years ago, that's our kitchen condition today. If we look at the world around us and people that we know and have encountered that want no part of religion or want no part of God, what, com what comes down to is not that they don't necessarily know or that there's not reason for them to believe. In great part, it's because they don't want to believe. And that's the hard part of it, isn't it? We can trace that all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because what happened there was not just a moral failure, it was not just a mistake, it was not just eating some fruit, it was an apple or whatever it was. It was a choice that was made. God says there is no law, no rule, just one thing you have to do. And that is don't eat of the fruit of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Everything else is yours. Everything is provided for you. You have an abundance of food. You're in charge of everything. You're in complete control except for this one thing. And when you obey that, when you follow that, then you acknowledge that I am God. You acknowledge that I have authority over you. You acknowledge that I am here and you are seeking to obey me. But then along comes Satan. And he says to them, in effect, he says, you know, you really can't trust that God has your best interest at heart. His plan for you really is all about him and has nothing to do with you and your well-being. So if you want to be God, if you want to be like him, if you want to have his power, if you want to have his knowledge, if you want to have his authority, then all you got have to do is eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree, of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the choice Adam and Eve made. They said, in effect, okay, we're going to do it our way, not God's way. I um, always um, actually liked the song of Frank Sinatra that said, I did it my way. You know, that's all. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. But uh, anyway, I always liked that song, except I hated the theology of it. Because, you know, in the end, he, he sings out, and he says, and I did it my way. And I wanted to stand up and say, so what? <laughs> we have a choice. Do we live life? Do we do things God's way? Do we accept him and his authority and his plan for us? Or do we go it alone? Do we do it our way? I've actually talked to some people who said, you know, yeah, you know, Christianity is kind of a good thing, but the reality is, is I want to be in control of my own life. I don't want somebody telling me what to do. I don't want to have any authority over me that tells me how I should live my life. I want to do what I want to do. And that's the reality. We sometimes struggle because we think that, you know, we think that, oh, you know, for, if I'm to witness to somebody, you know, I don't have all the answers or, you know, you know I, how do I explain to them that, that God is the only way? How do I, you know, how do the, I talk to them in these terms? It's not a matter, oftentimes, of a lack of knowledge. It's a matter of the lack of being willing to surrender ourselves to him and to his plan. So that's, in effect, what Paul is talking about. That's what he's saying here about the Jews. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And he goes on to say, he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to anyone who believes. I love the wording here, but you know, it's, it's kind of 
deep in the sense, you know, you read this and you say, now what is he saying? It says, Jesus is the final word on righteousness. There is none greater nor none better than Jesus Christ. Now you can work to obtain righteousness, but it is never ever going to be close to the righteousness of Christ. The point is that what Paul says uh, is that Christ is the end of the law. He is putting, he is putting in starting terms, startling terms, that Christ has ended the law as a way of righteousness, as a way to be accepted by God. When Paul talks about righteousness that comes to those who believe, he is referring not to general morality, but rather the state of, of rightness with God, that you have favor with him. Paul is saying Christ's work shows that the law as a way of righteousness is ended so that faith may be seen as the way of righteousness. This was huge. This was a game changer. This meant a huge career change in Christ's time. There were no longer to be any need for priests. There would be no longer any need for sacrifices. There would be no longer any need for that temple. Where Paul is going with this is that ultimately God would reside in the hearts of mankind. This is a change of hundreds of years of culture and hundreds of years of tradition. And the Jewish leaders wanted no part of it. We know that what has ended for the, uh, what has ended for the Christian is being under the law as a system of salvation. What has not ended is our obligation to obey the law as a way to please and express our gratitude to the God who saved us by grace. We also know that under God's word that it works. Life works best when we follow God's law, when we follow what God tells us in scripture, what we, when we live and attempt to do what is right, then that is a blessing to us. It's not just an obligation, but it is a way of life and a way that we find fulfillment in the way we live. As I read and studied this, I saw such a great peril with our culture today. In the time of Christ and the Apostle Paul, it was the Jews who refused to believe and it was the Gentiles, all uh, of those who that were not Jewish or, or Gentiles, but they believed by faith and they were reconciled to God. But today all that is changing. We are living each day more and more in a non-Christian culture. I say uh, culture because there are countries where Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds. If you uh, look into South America, that country is just exploding with new Christians, people coming to Christ. In Africa, numbers are doubling. We get amazing figures coming out of China of the number of people that are turning to Christ. But the reality is, is that's not happening here in our day 
and in our time. Now, uh, Steve and Mark have both uh, shared and talked with you about their views of Reformed theology. And I know there are people sitting here saying, oh no, you are not going there, please. Well, I'm just going to make a few comments. Um, you know, first of all, people say, well, oh, don't give me that theology. I don't, you know, I don't want to hear about theology. Well, interestingly enough, there's a, uh, one of the preeminent theologians in our time um, who recently passed away, R.C. Spruill, and he wrote a book called Everybody's a Theologian. Uh, the word theology, it comes from the Greek theo, which is God. Ology means study of. We have zoology, which is about animal behavior, and we study zoology, we study about animals and their behavior. We have psychology, which is uh, about the psyche or the mind, and so psychology is the study of the mind. Well, theology is the study of God and who God is and who we are in relationship to God. And where does it come from? It comes from our reading of the Scripture. Theology doesn't tell us what... Uh, how we read scripture. It doesn't tell us what to believe. What it does is it allows us to go in and read and connect the dots and come out with understandings about what scripture is telling us. Now, do people vary? Good Christian believers vary in terms of their theology and understanding? Yeah. Steve and Mark both have said that um, that there are things that aren't essential in terms of our accepting Christ and our faith and, and our coming to the Lord. That's true in terms of the understanding here. But the interesting thing is, is that on this topic, and that is, is that you ever seen a five-year-old child sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, Right? That five-year-old's a theologian, just by virtue of what he said. We're not any different. We all have, as we read and we study, if you read and study the Bible and you learn that you're a theologian. Well, one of the important things that is emphasized is the idea that, uh, <clears throat> is that all of us have sinned, certainly, and fallen short of the glory of God. But an important part of it here is, is that man is so sinful or so depraved that given his own choice, he will not accept, accept God. He will turn away from God. Given his free will, his choice and his free will is to turn away from God. And Paul talks about that in Romans. He says, he quotes, and there's Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. 
There is none who does good, not even one. And we see Paul echoing that and quoting that in Romans 3, where he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, not one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good. What's that saying is, is that unless God moves on somebody and the Holy Spirit and gives them the ability and the understanding and calls them to faith, then our choice is to go off and do it on our own. We're going to ignore God. We're going to turn away from God. But it's the movement of God's Spirit upon us, calling us to himself, to be reconciled to himself, that enables us to come to him. Now, in other words, when we struggle with the idea of free will, in effect what that means is, is that, yeah, we have free will, and we are stand condemned in our free will because we turn away from God. But God's grace in calling you and me to himself is not because of us. It's because the glory of God and his love for us and his grace for us calls us to himself. That's all that means. So why is that important? Why do I bring this point up here? Because Paul goes on to say and talk about here in this, he says, when you look at the Jews, he, he's saying uh, the importance of their knowledge and having heard and he has, takes the time to go back and says that the Jews had everything in their favor. They had the system. They had the, the understanding of the need for forgiveness of sin. They had the sacrifice and the law that pointed them to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And yet they turned away. What that says to us here is, is that as Gentiles, he says, why in the world did the Gentiles believe and not the Jews? And he says, you know, and he speaks not only to the Jews, but he speaks to everyone. And he says, you know, if we don't have someone who preaches, who speaks to us about these things, about God's plan of redemption, how can we ever believe if we don't have some means to hear the gospel, how can we believe? That was true in Paul's time. It's so true in our time. Why do I say that? Because where I'm going with this apply it to you and to me is to say who's going to tell your neighbor about God's love who's going to tell the people that you work with about God's plan of salvation who's going to tell you that they can have a relationship with God it's not all about laws and rules and control 
and people controlling your life. It is about your understanding that there is a God who loves you and wants to bless you, to save you and give you eternal life. So let me ask you, let me ask a hard question. I know some of you aren't going to like me after this, which is fine. We're not supposed to speak just to get you to approve of us. Who do you talk to? Who do you share with? Who have you taken the opportunity to tell them these things? Paul uses the word preacher here, but it's not the preacher who stands up front. It's the person who brings the message. And the reality is, is that the church is not a building. The church is not a program. And most certainly, the church was not the temple. The amazing thing is, is that Paul wrote this in about 58 AD. What would happen is, is when Jesus was walking alive, walking with his disciples and they walked past the temple and they marveled at the building and the structure and how great it was and how fantastic it was. Jesus turned to them and said, there'll come a time with this building that there will not be one stone that stands upon another. Now, to say that in his time because the temple was everything, that was one of the worst blasphemies that you could say. That was to speak against God. And to say that the temple would not stand, that it would be destroyed, first of all, that temple was built on an area which was earthquake prone. And so it was built that no matter what force came against it, that it would not fall. There were stones in that building that were thousands of tons in terms of weight. And, it would, and it, they could not be moved. But in 70 AD, the Romans circled the city and they contained all the people in and they went in and slaughtered them and the Roman army completely tore down the temple so that there was no longer one stone standing upon another. You can go there today and you can see those stones lying there. So what the point I'm making is, is that the church is not a building. The church is not a program. You are the church. You are the light that's set on a hill. You are the salt that Jesus talked about because you are the church. And what that means is, is that if people are going to hear, if they're going to know, it's only going to happen if you and I tell them. Now that makes us pretty uncomfortable to think about that. But it's, we're uncomfortable because, you know, I hate to say this, but what happens is, is that we tell ourselves, well, I don't know what to say. 
I don't know how to share this information. I don't know how to approach somebody to say what I say. Well, let me ask you this. Have you had an experience with Christ? Do you know Christ as your Savior and Lord? Do you know how he has blessed, blessed your life? Do you know how he has answered prayer in your life? Do you know what he's done in your life? That's all you have to share. You don't have to go into some long theological dissertation. But you can share who Christ is. And what Paul says in here is, is that a person is saved to on the basis of two things. One is that he says that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what that means is the word Lord has been used for centuries. It, it always means the person in authority, the one, the highest person here. You know, uh, you, you, you watch uh, some of the TV shows and, you know, you got the, the knights and the heraldry and the castles and stuff, and they come in and they say, oh, Lord, my Lord. That was a common word that was used in Jesus' time. But Scripture describes Jesus Christ as the Lord of lords. He is supreme. He is ultimate over everything. And so the one thing in terms of faith is that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Son of God. And the second thing is that we believe that he died for our sins and was raised from the dead for you and for me and our forgiveness and our righteousness, as Paul describes, is through him. Now, we all know this, don't we? I mean, we can say this backwards and forwards. But to kind of, to, to engage our friends, how do we, you know, we're afraid to do that. I hate to say this, but for some people, it's a matter of pride. Yeah, I said it. And what I mean by that is, is that we don't want to appear foolish. We don't want to have somebody upset with us. We don't want to have somebody reject us or to criticize us or to ridicule us. So we remain silent. If you want to understand what people have done for their faith, really done, read an old book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it talks about all the people who died and uh, were martyrs and, and died for their faith in Christ. And another one to read is uh, Eric Metaxas's book, Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany during the time of Hitler that actually was in the United States and he had escaped. But he says, you know, if I'm going to be a pastor and if I'm going to live out my life, I have to go back into Germany and set the example and uh, be a pastor to the people there and to give my life for the sake of the gospel. And he was executed by the Germans. He died because of that. And if you're like me, I would always hope that I would be able to do that, given the circumstances, that I would be willing to stand up and I would be willing to give my life and to die as a martyr for Jesus Christ.
I've thought that way. Have you? I'm, I'm sure many of you have thought that. But the problem is we're not even willing to open our, my, our, our mouth to share with our friends or our neighbors, are we? And it's a simple thing of sitting down with a person and say, John, Mary, tell me about your life. Tell me about your experience in life. Tell me about yourself. People love to talk about themselves. But to just engage them in conversation. And at some point, at some time in your relationship, to be able to say, tell me, you know, I'm a Christian or... um, Tell me about, do you have any interest in spiritual things? Do you have any kind of spiritual life? And people oftentimes will respond to that, and they'll talk about it. Another way to do it, too, is to start these things, conversations, is to say, is there a way, you know, I, I believe in prayer, I'm, I'm a Christian, and is there a way that I can pray for you? Most people, my experience has been, they don't say, no, I don't, I don't want you to pray for me. Whether they believe or not, they'll say, yeah, pray for me. But the trick is not just to say, oh, I'm going to pray for you. But the trick is, is to be able to sit there and pray for them right then, at that moment. Lord, I, I just want to pray here for Mary. Uh, Lord, I pray that your hand would be upon her, Lord. Uh, I pray that this problem that she's dealing with Lord, that you would help her, that you would reveal yourself to her, that you would show her that you love her, that you care for her, that you provide for her, that you bring healing to her. What's happening? They're hearing the gospel. They're hearing the gospel in your prayer as you pray for them. I was, went to Presbytery one time and was sitting with a man, and I'm, I'm, I'm not the example. I mean, I, could, I, I talk about this and know this, and, and so I'm held responsible, not just because I'm a pastor, but as a Christian. I have to take this seriously. And, and I was sitting with this guy, and so what happened is the waitress came by, and she was talking to us and taking care of us and just talking. And I said to her, I said, you know, this fellow and I, we're Christians. Is there a way that we can pray for you? And she kind of was shocked by it and paused for a minute. And she said, yeah, I'm having problems with my kids. I'm having problems in my marriage. I'm having problems on my job. And she took about 10 minutes just to pour out her heart. And we had the opportunity to pray for her at that point. That's sharing the gospel to people. But we have to be willing to take the risk. The other way is, is that we invite people to come to church and join you at church. See, what we do here is, while we're here, is we glorify God. Westminster Shorter Catechism is a study guide that we use sometimes to train children. But it has one question. The first question is this. What's the chief end of man? What that means is, is what's your meaning and purpose in life? Why do you exist? And the answer it gives is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When you come in here in this place, you should come to glorify God and to enjoy him in your time here. 
And all you're doing is saying, come and join with me. How many people had somebody invite them to come to church? Invite you? Yeah, several hands. And I could ask, how many of you became Christians become somebody invited you to go, come to church? Many people say that's true. So when we talk about evangelism, sometimes it's as simple as inviting people to come to church with you. We had a, a prophecy here several weeks ago, great prophecy, and it says God wants to raise up KPC to be even better than it was before. That's great. The speaker also said that's up to the uh, elders to um, discern this. Well, I'm not speaking for the rest of the elders or the other pastors, but my response is this to that. That is great. I would welcome that to happen. But it's not going to happen until you and I, as the church, reach out to the people around us. This church will grow. This church will flourish. This church will magnify the glory of God as we bring people with us to join with us in this place. So when Paul talks about for the Jews and for the people, how can they possibly know God's plan for salvation unless somebody brings them the good news? That speaks to me. It speaks to each one of us. Because you are the church. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are mindful here that uh, you call us here, Lord, to, to be willing to reach out to others, Lord, to bear witness to you, to glorify you, to praise you. And Lord, that you even in those times, Lord, that as we pray that you will give us the opportunity to share, that you will bring people into our lives that we can engage with, that we can befriend, that we can reach out to. Lord, it is you who calls them. It is you who brings faith to them. It's not up to us. It's a work that you are doing through us for them. And Lord, help us to be faithful to that. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. Be blessed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give him your grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.